0: We're going to talk about chips. No, not suburb barbecues with beer and potato chips. Computer chips. As many of you know, in a great spasm of bipartisan bon ami, Congress passed by a wide margin, which means a lot of Republicans joined the Democrats thin my, my majority a huge $52 billion piece of legislation called the CHIPS Act of 2022. In fact, if you want just one more example of bipartisan bonhomie, even if it's invisible, this is a, an act that President Biden will properly, I guess, uh, take a lot of credit for with his colleagues. But the CHIPS Act began in and incorporates, for better or worse, uh, key elements uh, from his predecessor's administration to do exactly the same thing. So at least philosophically, never mind politically, there's a lot of agreement about what the CHIPS Act is all about. And what it's all about is uh, providing subsidies, big ones, to the semiconductor manufacturing industry of America. So uh, in the funding, it's mostly aimed at the construction of a new uh, what's called FABs, chip fabrication facilities. It's a word that the semiconductor industry likes to use for factories. So the FABs uh, is a trade name. And you can get up to a $3 billion uh, uh, grant, cash, uh, for building a US-based company, US-based FAB, that can make uh, advanced semiconductors. Uh, there's a lot to like about this, uh, a lot to not like about it. But what I like about it is that Congress is paying attention. Um, which is good, and paying attention to manufacturing, paying attention in particular to this particular this this uh, this important segment of manufacturing. Uh, there will be some exclusions in the act. Uh, I'm not going to go through the act uh, detail by detail. I didn't I, I confess I didn't read all I don't know, close to a thousand pages. Others have. I'm reading what they wrote <laughs> so but I looking at the the top line of what this is all about, let's talk about the. The, the the good, bad, and the ugly of what this means for the United States. And we'll talk about it in three parts. You know why chips matter. I mean, maybe it seems obvious to you, but let me explain why I think it matters. Uh, explain why briefly. It's good that Congress is paying attention to this issue because uh, they've done a lot of damage to the sector. Intentionally, maybe not, but in fact over the last few decades a lot of damage to manufacturing in america because of things that have been done in washington <clears throat> and then then i'll talk briefly about what's not so good about the chips act first on a personal note uh, some of you may know this it's in my biography at my book which i continue to make note of you know the cloud revolution but my first job after i got a degree in physics because uh, There were no jobs for physicists at that time, market was saturated, economy was in bad shape, Um, was at a semiconductor fab. I got my first job since he's an engineer, working in the processes, uh, uh, designing them, and managing them and uh, troubleshooting them to manufacture computer chips or semiconductors. At that time, it was for RCA, which uh, which was then a great company. In fact, RCA, along with Texas Instruments and IBM, And then other smaller companies at the time, like like the famous uh, Fairchild, uh, which sort of gave birth ultimately to Intel. Uh, Those were the pioneers of the semiconductor industry, not just in America, but in the world. So uh, it was a great experience. I I learned learned a lot. In fact, I would say it it kind of imprinted how I think about manufacturing uh, in the intersection of science and engineering and politics ever since. So I, I have a I don't have a dog in the race anymore in that sense but i sort of have a, we'll call it an emotional psychological dog in the race I, I, I like chips always like chips they're fascinating and of course they formed a thread in my book we live in the silicon age the chip age the semiconductor age and that that uh that fact explaining what it means and why it matters is indeed the um central uh animating theme in the book i guess i could have called the book Instead of calling it the cloud revolution, I could have called it the chips revolution. And uh, if I were publishing it today, instead of you know, uh, given the chips act, maybe 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 we change we change the titles to the chips revolution. So chips matter because uh, they're not just computer chips. Uh, so what most people think we talk about chips, semiconductor chips, or computer chips. Uh, it's it's about manufacturing semiconductor chips of all kinds some some of course many are are for computers small computers and big computers supercomputers the handheld computer that you call your smartphone uh that's a that's a very big market the i i my colleagues a lot of us call them logic chips these are computer chips chips that perform uh calculations perform uh analyses if you like but there's lots of other kinds of chips that are extremely important uh, semiconductor devices so-called microcontrollers are really do- are are designed to do logic in the sense of uh, what a computer does, but rather control something intelligently. so there's essentially a a microcomputer, a microchip on the controller, but it has a lot of other functions that, you know to open and close windows on your in your car, uh, control skylight window opening and closing all kinds of um uh, uses for microcontrol which is a huge industry then there are semiconductors that are essentially uh, sensors that can sense uh, motion uh, that's how your phone knows it's being moved picked up and down uh, since you uh, can, can see things can see chemicals uh, that's a whole class of semiconductor chips that are chemical biological or physical sensors uh, that's what makes it possible to make autonomous cars and robots in fact the critical supply chain that everybody talks about is semiconductors That hurt the auto industry during the great lockdowns, they weren't really the the logic chips, it was this other class of chips. In fact, one of the most important class of chips are what my uh, colleague, my old friend who who died last year, I mentioned in a previous podcast, Peter Huber, he and I uh, wrote uh, an investment newsletter called the Digital Power Report, which was focused heavily on power chips. These are not logic chips, but the power semiconductors that control electrical power flows. That's what makes electrification possible. Without without power chips, there wouldn't be any solar panels, electric cars. The whole power semi industry is an extraordinarily important industry. The power semis, of course, are controlled by logic semis or microcontrollers. The whole package together gets you the electric car. So the batteries' power is, is controlled, mediated, and sent to electric motors entirely uh, because of the incredible power and economic efficiency of power semis and microcontrollers. Most of the power semis are now made overseas. And even though pretty much all of them are pioneered in America I and mean, many in Europe. So we're in the se- semiconductor age. Let me let me give you a couple other sort of scaling, uh, calibrations, sense of why why it matters, and and this would be more why congress Congress acted. Uh, it's it's a big industry. I mean, give you a, a sense of the scale in this sense. I mean manufacturing transistors and turning them into power controls, power semis, or sensors or logic chips. it's It's essentially a a transistor manufacturing industry that shrinks the transistors down, integrates them, hence integrated circuit onto a single chip. And so we're manufacturing transistors in these fabs, essentially. And humanity now manufactures about 10,000 times more transistors each year than the number of grains of wheat or rice combined that are grown by all the world's, world's farms each year. Think about that. I mean, this is an incredible incredible manufacturing accomplishment. It gives you a sense of how big it is, how big the industry is. I'll say it again. The the manufacturing industry globally today fabricates 10,000 times more transistors a year than all the world's farmers grow in terms of grains of wheat and rice each year. Big industry. Both of them are big, but the semi industry is obviously bigger or money terms. Uh, semiconductors are now inputs to make other things, just like steel is an input to make other things. And plastics, polymers are input to make other things. So what's happened over the last few decades is that the semiconductor industry has risen to be essentially co-equal as an input part of the economy to making everything else as steel and plastics. Or put in dollar terms, global steel industry is about $900 billion a year. Steels used to make everything from infrastructure to cars and plan- you know parts for planes and ships and you know, we're, we are still in a steel age. So $900 billion a year global steel industry. It's about a six or $700 billion a year global plastics slash polymers industry, which goes into making everything from your smartphone to your car, to medical devices. And it's about a $700 billion a year semiconductor industry. So similar similar scales. Those are the inputs to society. It matters who makes those things, where they're made, not just from a jobs perspective and economic growth perspective, but also from a security and a trade perspective. And in fact, I'll give you one last factoid to give you a sense why chips matter. Maybe what's motivated Congress to pay attention because the supply chains illuminated this where they got disrupted. If we look at just the US business sector and uh, how the Federal Reserve tracks business investment uh, in the four categories, the businesses, Businesses uh, talk about capital investment. Businesses invest in industrial equipment. They invest in transportation equipment. They invest in structures, and they invest in information equipment. The capital spending in information-related equipment is uh, is bigger than the other three, and has been for more than two decades. So, chips matter. Uh, we're digitalizing everything. Everything that we see, move, healthcare, research. Uh, You know, information news, what we can do, the fact that you're listening to this right now is entirely a a, a result of the existence of this entire suite of the kinds of chips I mentioned. So they matter. So in 1990, wind the clock back uh, into prehistory, which, by the way, 1990 was the beginning of the 10-year tech bubble that uh, was the storied expansion of the end of the 20th century. Um, seen from a Wall Street perspective, but you could also say that from from a Silicon Valley perspective was really the beginning of the the explosive rise of the Silicon Valley's economic and technological power. So in 1990, if we wind the clock back to that point in time, the United States and Europe each had about a 40% share of global manufacturing of chips, semiconductor chips. So US and Europe together had 80% combined of global manufacturing of semiconductors. Japan was number three at 20%. So pretty much the whole thing was U.S. and Europe. And U.S. US was pretty close to co-equal to Europe at the time, by the way. Today, U.S. and Japan uh, are both about 12%. Europe's below 10%. China is number one at about 24%. Tiny Taiwan, number two, about 22% share. South Korea, pretty close to Taiwan, about 20% share of all semis. So Asia... Collectively, is about the eighty percent share of uh, global manufacturing of semiconductors. So the world manufacturing order reversed between the OECD and Asia, if you liked, over the last thirty years. So why did that happen? There's there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons. Part of it, the other guy, other countries got good at it. Um, that's unequivocally the case. Other countries subsidized and invited those industries in. Other countries made it more appealing to build things there. While the United States um, Made it less appealing to build multi-billion-dollar industrial facilities, which is really what any manufacturing plant is—chip or otherwise. Uh, just so, you, so you have a, in your head, you know, a chip fab is not is is not something that looks like a uh, you know uh, a, a a virtual uh, piece of software. Chip fabs are big, big buildings, like any other manufacturing plant, called billions of dollars, consumes tens of megawatts of electrical energy, consumes vast quantity of of chemicals and water and materials to produce this incredible scale of semiconductor chips. Building factories of that scale, physical buildings that require so much power and materials and chemicals, is much more difficult in America because of the one word, regulations. In a sense, it would be fair to say, and I've written about it in previous Manhattan Institute papers, which you can find, uh, America's regulatory environment chased manufacturing out of the country and that was a force that was as important in many ways more important than the inducements those other countries had to attract manufacturing to their place. So, so we want to compete. You know, Congress has woken up, so to speak. This isn't the first time Congress has woken up and had a bipartisan agreement, uh, especially around uh, computers and computer chips. And in, a, in another piece of relevant history because I'll get I'll get to this what it means today but like the history actually matters you remember the old adage you know history doesn't repeat but it rhymes and the point of that is that there are patterns in history that matter and during the early Reagan administration and as as you know I I worked as a young very young guy junior guy the White House science office so I, I will relate a very briefly an anecdote based on what happened at that time. Now, China today is the so-called Asian tiger. In 1990, Japan was considered literally, a lot of written about the Asia's tiger. Uh, America and Congress was worried about uh, Japan overtaking the United States in manufacturing of all kind. It was already clear they'd overtaken the United States in automobile capabilities. And the Japanese government had launched a massive multi-billion dollar program to spend money on the next generation computing, to leapfrog America. And uh, Reagan was importuned by all kinds of lobbyists and his own staff to uh, mount a similar effort and get legislation passed through Congress to compete with Japan in its massive spending uh, to leapfrog America, to restore and retain America's dominance, which it had at that time, by the way, in in computers, IBM had a huge market share. Biggest market share in the world. Uh, I will tell you, I wasn't in any meetings with Reagan. Um, Young junior guys didn't get meetings with the president in that White House. If neither did Peggy Newton, by the way, she was in the same White House at the same time. I never met her, never met her since. However, she did write uh, when she left the White House that she had never met the president. And likewise, neither did I, because we're both of a similar age. We were too, too young then to have that were kept away from the important halls of power. Anyway, I was told by the science advisor who was in that meeting that when the president was importuned to uh, copy Japan's massive spending on next generation computing, Reagan uh, apparently looked around the room at his cabinet and said, well, I have no idea what the future holds. Remember this is 19. This is back in the, uh, in the early 1980s. I said 1990. I apologize. The outset, this is 1982, 83. Uh, Reagan looked around and said, "I have no idea what the future holds, but I do know one thing, none of you do. And in a sense it said more or less, and I paraphrase it let's let's just do what we can to unleash our industry, let them let them compete. And so at that time, by the way, the Reagan administration uh, with the cooperation of Congress effected the largest cut in the code of Federal regulations uh, since World War II, which which did directly lead to the great expansion. But by, By the turn of the 21st century, we were losing market share. And 12 years ago this summer, the summer of 2010, Andy Grove, uh, the since-deceased but storied president of Intel, uh, wrote an impassioned op-ed in Business Week about the state of affairs with respect to American manufacturing and chip manufacturing in particular. Remember this is 2010. So, and in fact, what he what he said was so important. Let me let me read to you three paragraphs from what he wrote. So Andy Grove, 12 years ago, wrote this. He said, recently, an acquaintance at the next table in a Palo Alto restaurant introduced me to his companions, three young venture capitalists from China. They explained with visible excitement that they were touring promising companies in Silicon Valley. I've lived in the Valley a long time, and usually when I see how the region has become such a draw for global investments, I feel a little proud. Not this time. I left the restaurant unsettled. Something did not add up. Bay Area unemployment was even higher than the 9.7% national average. Clearly, the great Silicon Valley innovation machine wasn't been creating many jobs of late, unless you're counting Asia, where American tech companies have been adding jobs like MAD for years. The underlying problem isn't simply lower Asian costs, it's our own misplaced faith in the power of startups to create US jobs. Americans love the idea of the guys in the garage inventing something that changes the world. New York Times columnist Jim Tom Friedman recently encapsulated his view in a piece called Startups Not Bailouts. His argument let tired old companies that do commodity manufacturing die if they have to. If Washington really wants to create jobs, he wrote, should should back startups. Friedman's wrong. I'm still reading, I'm still reading what. Andy Grove Road. Freedom is wrong. Startups are a wonderful thing, but they cannot be by themselves increasing tech employment. equally, Equally important is what comes after that mythical moment of creation in the garage as technology goes from prototype to mass production. This is the phase where companies scale up. They work out design details, figure out how to make things affordable, build factories, and hire people by the thousands. Scaling is hard work, but necessary to make innovation matter. The scaling process is no longer happening in the United States. And as long as that's the case, plowing capital of young companies that build their factories elsewhere will continue to yield a bad return for American jobs, end quote. Boy, was that prescient. Wasn't he absolutely right? Twelve years ago, he, before he died, Andy Grove was on a passionate chase uh, publicly, Congress, president, everybody to try and, and get more attention focused on the need for factories in America. Let's talk about what's not so good, what's good uh, uh, about this legislation briefly. Uh, I mean, obviously what's not so good is is falls in the category of the philosophy of governance, philosophy of free, ta- free trade versus industrial policy. When you, you, you know, it's not just that Congress is paying attention, the devil's in the proverbial details. So, w- how how are we paying attention? What are, what are we actually doing here? Is it going to really help? Congress can help. So this not I, you know I'm not whether for, for those of you who haven't figured it out, I'm not a libertarian. Obviously, I'm a sort of a free marketer. Governments have a role. Uh, governments play an important role uh, in terms of trade policy, in terms of regulatory policies for safety, and the like, defense. All the, not go down that rabbit hole, but the. The scale of the difference between industrial desires and policy and policy of free trade, the spectrum of that ranges all the way from Sovietizing an economy, uh, you know, statist economies, the Chinese kind of economy, which is a Sovietized economy to a uncontrolled economy, which nobody has, by the way, it doesn't exist. It's mythical, the libertarian laissez-faire economy, but one that leans more in that direction. America leans more obviously in that direction. Than China until now. I mean, the, the Chips Act is more uh of America trying to emulate China, in effect. <clears throat> you know, the Chinese have a famous saying that they do capitalism Chinese style. Okay, apparently now we do a Chinese, uh we'll call it uh statism America style. Guess <laughs> there's got to be a, an inverse phrase for this. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, so what's <clears throat> that's I, I uh, I'm not a, f- a fan, right? Um, of, of picking winners or losers. And a good deal is about picking winners and losers, but that's, that's the way it is right now. Um, here's, here's the core problem. Big factories require big construction. Uh, so what do we do to help make that go faster in this act? Well, nothing, but let me give you just, the quintessential example, the thing that has to be fixed is a regulatory state to make it possible. You can't just give people money. you have to make it possible for them to build what they need to build quickly enough and as quickly as they might elsewhere. The quintessential example, the difference between America and China uh, are bridges. They're big projects. Uh, the um, the Bayonne Bridge, I believe in New York uh, went through a five or six year environmental assessment process, not to build it, but just to expand it a little bit to. So it's already there. The environmental impact is known, but the environmental impact statement, rather than taking weeks, days, or year, uh, took years to do. Meanwhile, uh, and it got it got built. You know, the, the project started in uh, relatively quickly. The construction company that built it built it very fast. They they did a good job, uh, but it, the project took more than well over six years. Many of them can take longer than that to, to dredge the port of Savannah. And that port's been there a long time. So there's no mystery that about the environmental impact of having a port there. But the review process took five five years initially, then it stretched out to 14 years to dredge a harbor, to export or import goods. Meanwhile, in China, just as an example, uh, the Chinese, uh, this is one example, you can find lots of these on YouTube. <laughs> Uh, they they did a massive bridge expansion reconstruction project, uh, not quite as big as the Owen, but similar, in 43 hours. Okay, well, you can you can Google that. That epitomizes the difference between how long it takes to build essentially identical things with essentially identical skills in America and China. We don't fix that with the CHIPS Act. Uh, we need to fix that. Uh, maybe we'll get around to that in the next Congress. Uh, I'm mildly optimistic this possible. What we also need to fix, fix in the CHIPS Act is the ecosystem. Uh, we get a big fab built, but big fabs uh, don't not set aside how easy or hard it is to build it. They count on an ecosystem of skills and, and a penumbra of small and mid-sized manufacturing and supply and services firms that pro- provide products and services and tools to the fab. Uh, that ecosystem is a lot of what Andy Grove wrote about. That ecosystem is not part of the, the chip sack. We didn't do anything about, let's say, for example, neon. Uh, why do I say neon? Because ne- a lot of uh, neon comes out of Ukraine, it turns out. To mention a subject of some importance these days. And neon is essential to the uh, semiconductor fab industry because it's used in lasers that are critical to chip fabs. And neon supplies around half of the world's uh, semiconductor grade neon comes out of the two Ukrainian companies. Uh, Are we planning to replace the neon supply in the CHIPS Act? Uh, Nothing in there on that. We could go on and on. There's a long list of similar materials in the supply chain that are not part of the CHIPS Act. It's a big ecosystem. Uh, It's going to be very hard for a government or any group of really bright bureaucrats to micromanage exactly what the stimulator not stimulate. So we're I'm sort of back to my philosophical point that we have to think about how to broadly uh, make it make it a more favorable environment in America for the ecosystem to re-expand and reignite. Okay, what's good about the CHIPS Act? Well, it does have worker training in it. Uh, pro- I think it's got a lot of hooks about, you know, string, there's strings attached, but at least it's acknowledged it's, uh, it's, it's good. Uh, the other, probably the most important thing that's good about the CHIPS Act it doesn't stipulate what kind of chips you build that's good because who knows what kind of chips are gonna be the most important in the future and people forgot how important the power semis were so it's it's, we'll see which kinds of chips fabs get built right now it's gonna be mostly the high-end ones that intel builds and and since the uh, chips act was announced uh, both i think samsung and tsmc from uh, taiwan have announced New fabs are going to build in America. Most of them are going to be built in Texas, by the way. Uh, so it's good. What's also missing? But what, here's what's also missing in the Chips Act. Uh, and they they knew it when they wrote it. Uh, there's nothing about the packaging. What do I mean by packaging? When you make a raw chip, this would be the equivalent. You make a logic chip. This would be the equivalent of making an engine for a car. But uh, you have to ship the engine to Asia to have it put into a car because all the rest of the package, the car. Is in Asia, the people can make the package. The so chips have to go in packages. The packaging is an incredibly uh, technologically sophisticated industry as well. It's not like sticking it in a paper box. It's a it's a technology in of itself. In fact, it, in many cases, it's one of the most important uh, technology technological skills. The packages, uh, the technology of packaging is actually advancing in some respects now faster. Than the technology around the logic chip itself there's been an incredible ex- explosion of importance in intellectual property in improving the performance the uh, mechanical electrical and heat and price performance and economic performance of the chips because of the packaging now can we do something about that yeah sure and in fact the one of the uh uh a gentleman who was in the Trump administration, the State Department that worked for Mike Pompeo, uh, he uh, confessed in an interview the CHIPS Act passed that they knew at that time that there was nothing about packaging in there and that the CHIPS would still have to be packaged in Asia. But he said, it's a start. Okay, I agree. It's a start. (laughs) I'm not so sure it'll get us where we want. So let me end on on a positive note because in politics, you can't get everything you want. You know, you... And uh, to hearken back to Reagan, he said, you, you, you take the best you can get and then you fight for better in the future, sort of paraphrasing. And, but the politics do matter. As, I, as, as I've said before, and I began my book, The Cloud Revolution, <laughs> anyway, as I said on my book uh, preface, it does matter to get the politics right. Our, you know, our politics drove our manufacturing industry out of the country. Our politics, the policies we enact can help bring it back. I'm just more in favor of removing barriers, and uh, that I am of, of having governments collect money from taxpayers and hand it out to the to people who they think are the winners, because I just don't think there are enough people smart enough anywhere, including in government, to 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 micromanage an economy at, at, in that way. In fact, if you go too far down that path, you again sovietize an economy. It becomes a statist economy, and sovietizing an economy is a bad thing. I mean, it's you know, obviously, an invasion of an army is a bad thing. That's what's happening in, in Ukraine. But an invasion of bad ideas can damage free markets as much as an army can damage free people. And uh, we're in a little bit of risk at an invasion of bad ideas about both both parties, by the way, Republicans and Democrats, embracing the idea of micromanagement of the economy far, far more than than conservative principles in the past have been comfortable with. Uh, again, stipulate the obvious. Lots of roles, big roles for government. The debate in politics is always about the extent of the intrusiveness and the magnitude of micromanagement. So, CHIPS Act, I'll give it a net positive vote because of it reignites the debate that matters. Uh, that gives it the net positive. Uh, it, and I hope we'll fix it the next Congress. I hope the next Congress will go in because this is what the Congresses have done in the past. They've taken legislation like like the Obamacare. No matter what you care about that act, the fact is what Congress did after it was passed is they went back in and tinkered with it. The name stayed there, but the sort of the facade, if you like. And then a lot of stuff was changed and, and fixed and some of the some stuff stayed. I think that's what's going to happen with the CHIPS Act. So I hope that's what happens with the CHIPS Act. We'll we'll keep the good stuff and get rid of the bad stuff and use the idea and the money to to uh, do things that can help more broadly, uh, which I'll talk about another, in another episode. In fact, in another episode, I'll turn to the other massive piece of legislation just passed, uh, an oddly named Inflation Reduction Act, which of course, as all of you know, is the Massive Subsidy Spending on Green Energy Act. But yeah, you know, there might be some positive that we'll talk about. I'll, I'll search for the the pony and the poop on that one, on another episode. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we're gonna turn to uh, that in the next, uh, actually, let me, I will do the next episode on that. Uh, I'm gonna do, and we'll look specifically at uh, what the act can't do, what Congress can't make happen no matter how much money they spend, because they're gonna spend hundreds of billions of dollars to accelerate the energy transition. So I'll have to return to that. And I'll I'll give you a a lesson, maybe 10 truths that are immutable and unchangeable by fiat or by Congress or by money to to help navigate what can and can't happen with so much spending. That's what we'll talk about next time. And as always, if you enjoy these podcasts, please, please give us a rating on whatever platform you're using. A positive rating is what I prefer, but do give us a rating. And again, uh, questions, ideas, send them to me. Uh, I'm happy to uh, respond. I will get around to having another episode answering the questions I've received. And until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for The Last Optimist.